0: I got into indie music, which um, it was like remarkable because at the time I listened to it. The first time I listened to it, which was a Ravi Shankar album, which it had to be really. Now looking back, and although it's sort of the intellectual people have, they you know it's, it is technically the most amazing music ever, and um, spiritually and all this. But when I listened to the music. Even though intellectually I didn't understand it, I felt uh within myself as though I knew it and just knew it back to front, and it seemed so obvious and so logical and uh through that, I got into involved with Sitar and ravi Shankar and um Ravi Shankar is probably the person who's influenced my life the, the most, whether uh, maybe he's not that aware of it, but for me, you know, he's, I really love Ravi Shankar, and he's, he's been like, like a father sort of figure, but like, and a spiritual guide as well. Later I realized that the indie music was like a, the stepping stone to the spiritual thing, because I also had great desire to want to know about the sort of yogic thing, you know, I always, had a feeling for that. That led me to that and got involved with it and completing the cycle through, I got involved with Hinduism because Ravi Shankar was a Hindu and because it just happened that those things came my way and I went to India and I liked India a lot and that most of the people I knew in India were Hindus and that it was just a natural sort of um, involvement with it. But it was because of that it led me right round the cycle, and I got to understand the thing about Christ and Christianity, and what actually what Christ was. Through Hinduism, I learned the Christ about Christ, and so I, I have a great respect for Indian music and history and the, the philosophy. I mean, through down throughout all the ages, there's always been. The spiritual thing you know it's always been passed on and it's always will be and if anybody ever wants it in any age it's always there and it just happens that India was the place where it's been or was a sort of seat of it and uh, because Himalayas and things inaccessible to the people so they can always have peace there because they're the only the yogis are the only people who can make it out there so I don't know. I, it was maybe something to do with my past lives, but I just felt a great connection with it.
1: The people's words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah, no.
0: Nine eight seven six 20, five nine, four 20, nine. three two one. Don't operate under these conditions. You know, we're coming out, it's,
2: like, it's like, that, we're like we're striking, that's what it is, it's like a strike. And this is what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other.
0: You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or album. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> of discontent
1: with the Beatles. Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick, join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 28 And we're back again for episode 28. It's still January 6th, but we've nearly reached the end. This day seems to have, in hindsight, been the turning point in the fate of the project. Episode 27 focused on the infamous argument between Paul and George, Its impact was perhaps overestimated in the Let It Be film, but more recently it seemed much less of an event when taken in context. But even that can be deceiving. In front of the cameras, voices aren't raised, blows aren't exchanged, but feelings are definitely hurt, and a gulf has definitely opened up between Paul and George. Before we get into that with our recap, here is another podcast recommendation. I am the Eggpod. I doubt that if you're listening to me, you've not heard of this excellent pod, but for those that haven't listened yet, their recent series featuring a summary of each day of the Get Back project with special guests is an excellent way to get a true feel for these sessions. At least while you wait for me to get round to it. With that in mind, here is a summary of episode 27. The Beatles finish rehearsing Don't Let Me Down, it's been grueling, but good progress has been made, Paul wants them to rehearse two of us next and John can be heard flicking through his clipboard looking for it. George isn't sure which song they're talking about and wonders if someone is on piano for this one. John is more engaged and remembers his guitar part. Paul asks John to sing the melody line and he duly obliges while Paul sings harmony. Ringo remembers all the drum patterns he's been asked to play Only George seems vague about what to do, as with Don't Let Me Down, he continues using the wah-wah pedal throughout. Paul wants the backing to continue to play through from the chorus to the middle section. George nitpicks with Paul over what he actually means by this. An audio slate gives the time as 4.50. They practice the harmonies for the end of the song. Another run through and George has finally switched off the wah-wah. Paul pauses to suggest a drum part for Ringo in the middle section of the song. This is reminiscent of Be My Baby by the Ronettes, featuring the now dearly departed Ronnie Spectre. For this section, Paul also suggests a guitar part for George that he briefly tries but doesn't run with. John complains that they're tackling the hard songs first. Paul disagrees. All it needs is imagination. Paul makes another drum pattern suggestion to Ringo, which he doesn't quite grasp. The musical ideas are flowing quickly from Paul and his bandmates struggle to keep up. Paul calls for another run-through that stops the band to question what George is playing. This leads to the infamous argument. I went into the argument at length in the episode, but the main gist is this. Paul as can be heard is letting his imagination flow freely coming up with musical ideas for each player as he goes along. George is meticulously note by note working out his guitar part slowly and carefully almost mathematically. The two methods of working just aren't compatible. John has deferred to Paul to make all the arrangement decisions and doesn't participate but this power vacuum causes George and Paul to squabble As witnessed in Don't Let Me Down, if left to his own devices, George can create elegant, melodic guitar lines that perfectly complement the song. But as Paul is much more of a musical savant, and his enthusiasm is overwhelming, he can dominate the group dynamic. His view that George simultaneously working on his guitar part is putting him off, just reinforces George's deeper belief that Paul doesn't want him to play, and he can't let that go. Paul makes the situation worse by reminding George of the sessions for Hey Jude where he did just that. The argument carries on through the rehearsal without really getting resolved and George's resentment has only been increased by the exchange. As John plays guitar over the last parts of the discussion we hear Paul suggest they learn all the songs in a very simple way first and then embellish them. John calls this strumming approach vamping. John offers the chugging guitar part to George as a way of getting Paul off his back. George doesn't take up the offer. Paul now raises the idea of each composer being responsible for the arrangement of their own song. George is in favor of this, contradicting his comments on Friday about taking a more collaborative approach like the band. Johnny's happy to let everyone improvise on his songs. Paul observes that the disagreements aren't just over music. Their attitude to each other affects every aspect of their work together, even in business. John plays two of us in a different, slower rhythm, only semi-seriously. Another run through and Paul asks George to show him what he's playing in the chorus that's clashing with his part. Kevin offers John a beer, but he'd rather have tea. George, on the other hand, needs a drink. Despite all the conflict, Paul now wants the band to play the song the way they originally were either to keep the peace, or he genuinely thought it was better. George, still hurting from the exchange, merely offers that he's happy to assist Paul, rather than contribute his own ideas. Noodling on guitar, he plays Frere Jacques before, playing a brief rendition of Bob Dylan's It Ain't Me Babe. It's John who steers the band back to rehearsing, interrupting George to ask Paul how he wants the rhythm of the song. George to ask Paul if he wants a more country feel. Paul is defensive, not able to make a decision for fear of upsetting people again. George suggests a slower paced version and starts it, but Paul cuts him off, counting in another run through. Without John's chugging rhythm, this is actually better. George and Ringo do play Paul's suggested parts. Everyone is trying to compromise. There follows several attempts at an ending the first being quite tricky rhythmically, so he's quickly abandoned. As they finish this, Paul makes a comment about the torment of it all. A reference to the conflict they've just been through. Another run through with the chugging guitar intro. Georgie's guitar part begins to resemble the pseudo bass line he'll play in the finished recording. As they finish another run through, Paul mentions an embarrassing personal problem that may be affecting his mood. For the ending, Paul now wants a slide guitar part. George, prompted by John, approximates this sound. And at this point, without very much added to the song, rehearsals for two of us conclude, and we rejoin the Beatles on the Twickenham soundstage. While looking for slide guitar notes, both John and George hit upon the two note riff that will eventually form the intro to the song. returned, John asks him if he's tracked down the lyrics to Across the Universe Mal tells him Peter Brown who acted as de facto Beatles manager at this point is getting in touch with Dick James their music publisher to source them We'll cover both of these gentlemen when they make an appearance George plays Hear Me Lord again but gets distracted by Mal. As John starts across the universe, George plugs in the wah-wah pedal again. John has only a vague idea of the second verse Paul harmonizes but doesn't play
0: It's a finished album. Is he got oh, them? an acetate. Oh, I've got this already. Oh, Mary Hopkins. Oh, well,
1: maybe it's a new one. <laughs> it's one. George's hand is an acetate at Mary Hopkins album Postcard, produced by Paul. George tries to get some interest in Hear Me Lord again. Yes I am, yes sir. Sarcasm from John. Paul is saying, is that a new one? Clearly having ignored the number of times that George has played it already today. On the 6th of April 1965, the Beatles were filmed on a set at these self-same Twickenham film studios. They were filming the interior kitchen and dining room scenes for the fictional Rajahama Indian restaurant sequence of their new Technicolor picture, Help. During a break in filming, George Harrison tinkered with the prop Indian classical instruments that were used by extras miming to a Cod Indian style rendition of A Hard Day's Night. In particular, he showed interest in the sitar on set and tried to get a tune out of it. During the Beatles' US tour in August 1965, the one that included a performance at Shea Stadium, David Crosby of the Birds introduced George to the sounds of Indian classical music and in particular the work of sitar player Ravi Shankar. Harrison became fascinated with the instrument and immersed himself in Indian music. Upon returning to London, he discovered a sitar for sale in a shop called Indiocraft on Oxford Street. I didn't know how to tune it properly. It was a very cheap sitar to begin with. A month later, while working on sessions for John Lennon's song Norwegian Wood, George hit upon the idea of following John's guitar part with a similar melodic line on the new sitar. Keen to learn more about this music that seemed to resonate with him, though he had no intellectual understanding of it, George was put in touch with London's Asian Music Circle. The AMC had worked with George Martin in the past, providing backing for Peter Sellers on his in hindsight questionable Indian-style rendition of Wouldn't It Be Lovely from My Fair Lady. In fact, the story goes that when George Harrison broke a string on the sitar during the recording sessions for Norwegian Wood, Indian writer and former political activist Ayana Angadi founder of the AMC, arrived at EMI Studios with the replacement string and stayed to watch the rest of the session. It was the AMC who sourced a tutor for George so that he could progress on the instrument. Thus began George Harrison's first steps into immersing himself in Indian culture. Along with wife Patty, he regularly attended recitals, and a friendship grew between them and the Angardis, which in turn extended his network of associations with Indian musical and cultural figures. Harrison's first Indian-style composition in 1966, Love You Too, featured another Angadi connection. Anil Bagwat was invited to play Tablet Drums on the track and was credited on the album sleeve as well as receiving £35 for his trouble. The song is in fact a milestone in the pop milieu. It is the first example of a Western artist capturing a non-Western musical form authentically, for the most part, in structure and arrangement and doing so with respect, not resorting to parody. Aside from teaching George the rudiments of playing the sitar, the AMC and in particular Ayana Angadi were instrumental in organising the initial meeting between George Harrison and his soon to be friend and mentor Ravi Shankar on the 1st of June 1966, a mere nine months after George had bought his first sitar. Shankar agreed to accept George as his sitar student, although he was candidly unimpressed by the Beatles' first two attempts at Indian-style music. The meeting would do much to raise both men's profile, singling George out as another unique Beatle voice and propelling Shankar to the level of virtual rock star. On the 14th of September 1966, following the Beatles' stressful summer tour, George and Patty flew from London to Mumbai, or Bombay as it was then known. The purpose of the break was for George to study sitar with Ravi Shankar and for the couple to study yoga. The two activities are not unrelated, since the seated position for holding and playing the sitar caused George a great deal of pain. For George, the trip was idyllic. It was a fantastic time. I would go out and look at temples and go shopping. We travelled all over and eventually went up to Kashmir and stayed in in a houseboat in the middle of the Himalayas. And I could hear Ravi in the next room practicing. I went to the city of Benares where, Where there was, was a religious, religious festival going on called the Ramila, there were thousands of holy men there including the sadhus or Enunciates. In England these holy men would be called vagrant and be arrested, but in a place like India they roam around and some of them look like Christ. Although christened a Roman Catholic, George had never been a devout Christian. However... During his time in India, he became increasingly drawn to the philosophies of Hinduism, in particular, its mysticism. To a certain extent, this was a very idealized romantic vision of Hindu culture, as seen through Western eyes. In the 1960s, Hinduism was undergoing a reform and modernization process, helped to a great extent by the more materialistic desires of a far more educated population. Hindus in India soon came to embrace other ideologies such as Marxism and Nationalism as well as founding democratic movements. Ravi Shankar was himself Hindu and a devotee of Shri Krishna that is God in the form of man. Devotees of Shri Krishna are a significant proportion of the Hindu population in India but their veneration for Shri Krishna is not shared by all Hindu sects. However It was these Vaishnavas, as they were known, that had the greatest influence on George's spiritual growth. Most notably, they emphasised that one must surrender to God through meditation. In order to meditate, one needs a mantra, and Hindu mantras are musical, which naturally appealed to the Beatle. George related that in 1967, while travelling the Greek islands on their ill-fated trip to set up a commune there, He and John Lennon kept singing the mantra endlessly. Because she couldn't stop when she got going. It was like, as soon as you stop, the lights go out. His newfound enthusiasm for the benefits of meditation influenced the other Beatles too. Through his wife Patty, George introduced his fellow bandmates to the now notorious Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. More about him later. Even though this didn't prove to be the spiritual awakening he hoped for, George continued to study and seek out new paths to enlightenment. Here, in January 1969, he is beginning a relationship with members of the Hare Krishna movement. Two of the devotees are present today. It's possible that George was keen to present his new devotional song, Hear Me Lord, not just to the Beatles, but also to his new friends. Hear Me Lord as presented today consists of just three chords. F sharp minor, E major and C sharp seventh. Very easy for John and Paul to pick up. Maybe in response to John's complaints about the number of chords in Let It Down. It could have been learned very quickly and added to the lineup of songs for the concert. But its serious tone and slow tempo most likely didn't inspire the rest of the Beatles to bother learning it. The way George plays the chords here is very typical of him. Avoiding straightforward chord shapes, he plays each one as an inversion high up the neck, making the song sound more sophisticated than it is. Lyrically, it could be argued that the inspiration for this song is more earthbound than heavenly. The weekend of January 4th 5th is believed to be the time that George's wife, Patty, left their marital home after she became aware of Georgie's dalliance with French model Charlotte Martin, who was staying with them at the time. Some of the lyrics of Hear Me Lord appear to be expressing remorse and seeking forgiveness for his actions, especially the line, help me Lord please to burn out this desire, which sounds like a plea for help to suppress his carnal cravings, which have caused genuine hurt to someone he loves. As a suitable song for the Beatles, it probably falls short of the standard they were hoping for. Initially, George considered performing the song solo with the Staple Singers, but the looming deadline made him doubt whether that would be a practical idea. And so, an important song for George was neglected, and George's mood, already downcast due to marital woes and the lack of sleep, only worsened.
2: Do you want to do that organ
0: of his before we start the Yeah. Do you want to do that organ one, George? Pardon? That one with me on the organ. Do you want to do that? Mm. Yeah, I don't mind.
1: Yeah. Okay. Initially I thought John was just unimpressed with him, me Lord, but actually he's being more practical here, he's saying, Let's rehearse something we've already done before we start a new song now don't be sick. That's Paul saying to someone Now don't be sick Vomit seems to feature quite prominently in these sessions
2: I I heard this, I heard this in my head last night, great, only it was, it was more like it was using, it was that thing of using the organ, and then and then guitar came in and he sang you know what you know that mean more like little help from my friends where the bits come in and then there's that bit and then there's
1: that bit Paul has given an arrangement some thought last night which is supportive his idea is based on Joe Cocker's version of with a little help from my friends starting with the organ and then having the drums crashing and building up to something bigger <laughs> This was 93 tape one. Tape cuts. B roll.
0: Time is now 6 o'clock. Continuation of slate 92.
1: Oddly, this is a tiny section of Across the Universe from earlier.
0: This is roll 9. Right, uh... Roll 47 on camera A. Slate 90...
2: 94. Roll 46.
1: Some time may have passed. George leads the band through a pretty competent rendition of All Things Must Pass.
2: With the morning it will fade away. The
1: John goes to the chorus too early, otherwise it's improved on Friday's rehearsal. forget the ending. Mm. Not sure but that sounds like George is plugging into yet another different wah-wah. seems to be enjoying the sound of his voice through the PA or he's being sarcastic. reminds them of the ending to the song George wordlessly starts another run-through John remembered the Lowry Glide switch. Johnny's fooling around with Chris Montez's hit Let's Dance, inspired by the sound of the Lowry organ.
0: Hey baby, you take
2: a Let's dance.
1: Written and produced by Jim Lee, Let's Dance was the number two UK hit for Chris Montes in 1962. It featured Joel Hilton on guitar, Ray Pullman on bass, Jesse Salles on drums, and the distinctive organ of Ray Johnson, providing the song's hook. There is a Beatles connection of sorts. Tony Sheridan, who had used the Beatles as a backing band for his minor hit My Bonnie, recorded a cover of Let's Dance with a backing group calling themselves the Beat Brothers. In 1967, this version was released in the UK on the album The Beatles First, erroneously crediting the song to the Beatles and Tony Sheridan. One, two, three,
2: four.
1: Paul counts the song back in. Intuitively, Ringo is now letting George run through the intro twice. Paul's bassline is still quite exploratory. Interesting how he feels free to improvise on someone else's song when he won't let them do the same on his. Once again, they're looking for something different in the middle section, but they're doing this by playing it and not arguing about it. Paul's showing his bassline to George, presumably for his approval. Guidance to Ringo to continue the drumming from the second verse to the middle section. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That sounds like Michael Lindsay Hogg saying, Indomitable. Paul picks up on it. I can't find if grouper man is a reference to anything or just wordplay.
2: Just with yeah. oh. a
1: Tape runs out. This seems to be the same performance. This is roll forty-seven wild. I might
2: can blow those clouds away.
1: Note: George is using John's suggested lyric, "A mind can blow those clouds away," having misread the word "wind" on the third.
0: 97
2: sink 97 including in.
1: unusually for a newspaper man. Morris Kinn won the respect of many musical artists. American stars such as Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. and Elvis Presley held him in high regard. The Beatles, along with the Rolling Stones, expressed gratitude for the support of Kinn's paper, The New Musical Express. If his name seems familiar, it's because Kinn wrote a column under the pseudonym Alley Cat, which John has discussed on Friday. Lou and Leslie Grade Limited became the largest talent agency in Europe in the years after World War II. Lou Grade branched out into the emerging commercial television industry, forming Associated Television or ATV. ATV Music was a subsidiary of Grade's organisation and would play a significant part in the Beatles' future when they successfully outbid Lennon and McCartney for Dick James's majority share of their publishing company, Northern Songs. The impact was devastating to Paul McCartney, and he has on several occasions fought to regain the rights to his Beatles catalogue. He currently owns the rights to just 32 songs from the Beatles' early releases. It won't be until 2026 that the remainder of these songs become available. seems to lack enthusiasm for his own song maybe his mood isn't great at the moment he touches on the hear me lord chord perhaps he saw that this has been ignored but he's turning down an opportunity to work out a more polished arrangement for all things must pass which is a shame and that's it thanks for listening Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.